we do the same thing psychologically. We are afraid to go all in because what if you go all in and you fail? I would probably have a real long conversation with myself about taking the governor off and saying, hey, look, when you're fighting and you're horsing around with friends, cool, you can play it safe. But when you're going in the business game or the investing game or the your goals or the military or whatever else, like in life, give it everything. Don't don't hold back. Don't leave anything in the tank. Don't don't worry about if other people think you went overboard. Nobody's going to care. If they do, then they weren't the people you need to associate with. Hang out with the A players. Go for it. Welcome, everybody, once again to Retired at Army, where we dig into all things military transition and retirement. Uh, try to dig into the details and go a little bit deeper into the discussion and to also highlight uh, the military journeys of transition for military members across all services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, doesn't matter, active duty, reserve. Uh, we try to include everybody and be very, very inclusive. Uh, today, I have with me a very special guest, Mr. David Perret. David Perret joined the Marine Corps in August 2008. Since that time, he's lived in or traveled to many unique places worldwide, including combat tour in Afghanistan. His awards include the Navy and Marine Corps Accommodation Medal, two Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medals, and Combat Action Ribbon. David got started in real estate investing in 2015 after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. He house hacked a duplex with the FHA loan and lived in it for a little while until getting married to his beautiful wife, Kimberly, and received orders to Hawaii. David and Kimberly have two children, Cody, age 12, and Jackson, age 4. While stationed in Hawaii, David bought a 10-unit apartment in Missouri and was able to use bank financing, seller financing, and home equity line of credit to purchase this property with less than 6% down and on great terms. Through these experiences, from military to millionaire was born with the goal of teaching service members and veterans how to build wealth through real estate investing, entrepreneurship, and personal finance. As a result, he has helped many of his readers increase their savings gap, purchase real estate, and increase their chances of achieving financial freedom. With over 100 units in his personal portfolio, an investor in several other deals, David has achieved financial freedom in 2021 and transitioned from active duty into the Marine Corps Reserves in order to devote his full time to helping service members and veterans achieve financial freedom. David is also the author of the book, The No BS Guide to Military Life, How to Build Wealth, Get Promoted, and Achieve Greatness. Now, I know there's a lot of uh special words in there in that intro and we will get into those in the in the course of the discussion but welcome david welcome to the show glad to have you here well thanks for having me and yeah i should probably go in and update that at some point you're reading through it and i'm like oh yeah my kid's definitely gonna be six in like two weeks but you know oh well i mean that's not the most important thing in life right like i don't know that your listeners are gonna be like hmm david's kid is not four I'm sure that sure the internet will fact check everything for us and make sure keep us all on, on track. To be fair, I don't think Jackson's going to listen to this episode either, so you know he won't be upset. At least for another ten or fifteen years, you're safe. It, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let me let me dive in and and take a left turn at the very very beginning. Um, what does your the first thirty to sixty minutes of your day look like as opposed to what it looked like when you're on active duty? Now that you're not on active duty anymore. Um, how does that differ from, from when you were on, uh, in the service? Ooh, can I, can I give the answer for what it, 
should look like and and hopefully will look like again in like three weeks rather than what it looks like right this moment um and yeah yeah so and i'm gonna and i'm gonna preface that answer with the fact that uh my uh i so i'm building and releasing my own planner like 90 day goal journal planner right now which i was hoping to launch like this week but amazon it doesn't sound like they're going to get me my proof copy until like the 26th and i'm i refuse to launch it without seeing the physical copy to make sure it actually comes out of the printer right um that being said uh the whole reason i built it is because the ones that i were using like they were back ordered and then the other anyway the, the whole story uh the one that I was using as the the journal that I tried when the one I had used for like three years was backlogged, uh, I just ran out of sheets for the daily journal like two weeks ago. And I was like, I'm not buying a 90-day planner for the three weeks leading up to Christmas. I'm just going to not journal. And it drives me nuts. I, I feel chaotic without doing it. So um, that being said... Um, I think the biggest difference really is just what time I wake up. So when I was active duty, you know, I was trying to build the last three, four years I was active duty was trying to build this business. So I was up at like four, four fifteen, and trying to get two or three hours worth of work done before going into the, the office. Uh, and now my alarm is going off at five forty-five or six. Um, that's the biggest fundamental difference. The actual routine is still fairly similar and it's, you know, wake up, maybe splash some cold water on my face, take whatever medication, drink some water, uh, sit down and journal, which is really just like writing out my plan for the day, writing out my goals, most important steps for the day, like my three biggest tasks to accomplish for the day, um, what I'm grateful for, those kinds of things. Uh, I'll read for 10 or 15 minutes, like a, a daily stoic passage and a chapter in a book. And then... I'm trying to get to where I meditate. I am. I don't want to say that I'm ADHD because that seems like a victim thing because I've never been diagnosed, but I am just not good at meditating. Uh, I, I don't know if it's because I'm constantly thinking of things or if I just haven't practiced enough. Uh, for me, the, the best way for me that I've found to meditate is with like the help of like ice baths and it's really hard for me to convince myself to do that first thing in the morning. So I do that in the evening. Uh, so meditating often ends up being an evening thing. I'm trying to get better at it in the morning, but so it'll be like, you know, the journal, the reading goals, that stuff, maybe a short, like 10 or 15 minute walk or some push-ups and stuff to get the blood flowing. Uh, but usually it's either that or just straight to the gym. Um, and then, you know, so first like 30 minutes is that bit of the routine and then generally getting in the car and driving to go work out somewhere and in the office by, well, I go to the office to shower. So in the office by 8.15, 8.30 showering and end at work by 8.45 or 9. Uh, and when I was active duty, it was basically all of that two hours earlier. Let me actually ask you a question about your journaling since you brought it up. Um... It's, I, I find it pretty important. I've been slacking on my journaling as well, um, but I do do my daily reading. I do, I, it's kind of a similar morning routine to what you do. Um, do you tend to just journal in the mornings or do you also journal in the evenings to like recap the day? 
I'm supposed to. <laughs> uh, and and the the planner that I have designed has an end of day section. It's it's very short. It's just like an end of day recap. Like, did I do the most important steps that I had outlined? Did I win the day? What was the what did I learn today? Uh, like notes for tasks tomorrow, like very, very short. It's like a half a page. Um, it's not meant to be like a big brainstorm or data dump. It's just meant to be kind of like a, this is what I got right today. This is what I could work on. And, oh, here's some things I need to do tomorrow. So that the next day you look at it and you just go, oh yeah, I need to write that down this morning. Um, I'm historically really bad about remembering to do the evening part. Uh, just get caught up in time with the family or whatever, and I forget to sit down and do it. And I think part of that is just because I, as I say this out loud, it's because I have where I put the journal. And I, now that I say that, I'm probably going to try to fix that habit. So right now the journal sits by my laptop out in the dining room, which is where I sit down and do it every morning. And if I was smart, I would probably put the journal right by my bed on like the nightstand so that in the morning I grab it and I walk out to the dining room and then I come back and I put it on the nightstand as I grab like my keys and stuff. And then at night it's sitting there on the nightstand. So I see it and it would trigger me to do it at night. So that's probably what I'll do once the new journals come in. Yeah. It's all, it's all about uh, product placement, right? <laughs> Putting it where you can, where your eyeballs are going to be at. Um, and as far as the meditation thing, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. I'll tell you from personal experience, I've been doing meditation on and off for at least a dozen years. And uh, it, it really takes just the daily effort um, and there's ways that you can, because there's no one meditation method that works. And I think meditation becomes this kind of woo-woo like statement that people are like, oh, it's, you have to sit down on a cushion and you have to like close your eyes. Like you don't have to do any of that crap. Um, you literally just have to find what works for you and what puts you in a state of mind where you can release thoughts and uh, just be calm for you know 15 or 20 or 30 minutes at a time or an hour depending on how how long you can go for um i would probably try something like a guided meditation like a headspace app or something like that if you haven't tried it before uh, it really helps and it's it's kind of like a crutch to get started and then once you get into it then you can actually start to that, that muscle memory starts to work and you build the muscles for meditation just like you build muscles for you know, weight training um, and then you can kind of like go off on your own path from there. It's, it's kind of interesting, but yeah, there's tons of ways to get into it and improve it. Yeah. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. I wish they would sponsor the show. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, okay. So when you first decided to get in the military, can you give me the, like the time and the place, what, what mental self-talk was going on in your brain, uh, when you decided to sign up for the military service? Oh, when I decided to join, um, <laughs> I don't know if there was much mental self-talk or <laughs> I was, uh, I, <laughs> I grew up in, in Little Rock, Arkansas or outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, didn't have money for school, didn't like school and lived in, I was like a homeschooled kid who lived in, technically I was in Little Rock, but I lived closer to this town, Roland, which has a post office and a stop sign. And, um, the school that I, I went to public school for one semester and it was, uh, not a good school. And my experience essentially led me to come to two conclusions. 
Um, I hate school and we knew I didn't have money for it. And I was not academically enough inclined to get a scholarship or athletic enough to get a scholarship. And I need to leave Arkansas. So when the military recruiters are coming around when you're in public school, like what better way to leave Arkansas without paying for school than the military? And so I think my mental headspace was basically like, oh, the Marine Corps will help me become cool and see the world. What an adventure. Adventure sounds great. Um, and I was kind of rebellious to being kind of the sheltered kid. So, yeah, um, I think I had a, a very quite similar story. I had to just get the hell out of Dodge. I grew up out of, outside of St. Louis, so not officially in St. Louis, but in and around St. Louis in the same kind of situation. It was it wasn't so much the school thing. I enjoyed school, but I just kind of. Uh, yeah, I was in I was in that situation where I was like, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to end up in one of two places, probably in jail or probably in the grave. So <laughs> I didn't think I was going to make it to 21 if I if I would have stayed there. I probably wouldn't have. So yeah, depending on what part of St. Louis, it definitely. Yeah, both both sides of the river. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that uh, area well and Little Rock and around there. So yeah, I can. It's it's similar. It's a very similar kind of place. Midwest. <laughs> I live in Springfield now. Oh, nice. So not too, not too far. Yeah. My brother lives out there in the middle of nowhere in Dora, Missouri. So if you've ever heard of that. <laughs> no, but I bet if I Google it, it's probably like right next to me and I'm like, Oh, Hey, it's exactly like the town you described. It's got like one gas station slash post office slash grocery store and one stoplight. That's it. So when you were coming to, the end of your term uh, in the in the Marine Corps, what was the last, I say 90 to 180 days, because generally that's coming off of active duty, like that's the crunch time, but it could be longer. It could be the last year or two years uh, when you were getting ready to transition. Like maybe um, could you walk me through what, what you were thinking about if you had anything planned beyond the military and then what that last like sort of six months or however long it was before you got out when you were doing transition and when you were doing resume building, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I'm kind of a nut job. Um, I, I would say I'm a, a different case than most when it comes to that in the fact that I was probably more prepared than most people, but also in a completely different way. Um, like, you know, they tell you, you have to build a resume for like taps or whatever. And when they sit you down and they're like, okay, we got to go over your resume. I basically pulled up my net worth tracker and was like, I have a hundred rental units and $700,000 worth of equity. I make more money in cash flow every month than the Marine Corps pays me. And I have a full-time employee who I pay more than the Marine Corps pays me. I didn't really waste my time with a resume. I'm not working for anyone else. I'm not taking a job. I'm not really worried about it. And the lady was like, okay, signed. Um, so, so for me, it was weird for me that last two years, I was really torn on getting out. Uh, and it really boiled down to fulfillment. Um, and, and for me, a lot of it boiled down to the more I got promoted in the Marine Corps, the more I found myself in desk positions, you know, and I kept volunteering for like the adventures, but the war had ended, the, the adventures went away. Um, the more you get promoted, the more you get desk jobs. And unfortunately in the Marine Corps, a lot of, a lot of times, if you're good at your job, it means that 
they're going to keep you at the headshed and send the other people out on the adventures. Uh, and I was not bad at my job. So my last six promotion reports, I think five of them were hundreds, meaning, you know, top graded by my reporting officer or reporting senior. Um, and so, you know, I don't say that to brag. I just say that to, you know, like I was doing well enough that it was making my job really boring for me and it was not fulfilling. I didn't have, I was at a high enough level command that as a E6 with 13 years, I was on a slow promoting MLS, uh, E6 with 12 years under my belt, uh, almost E7, now technically E7, I guess. Um, I was one of the lowest ranking guys in the command. So I didn't have Marines under me. I didn't have, you know, I went from running the motor pool and convoys and, and stuff to like working with civilian convoys of semi trucks and just not fulfilling and, you know, reporting to colonels and, and just, and, and so I'm, I'm not feeling fulfilled in the Marine Corps at the same time that COVID happens. And then I'm working, you know, my family had moved back to Missouri and I'm working full time on my real estate business and my brand and everything else. And one day I kind of look up and I realize I'm working on this from like four to six 30 in the morning. And then from like six to eight at night and maybe on the weekends. And it's all of a sudden it's making as much money as the Marine Corps is paying me. And I'm not beholden to anyone. I'm making my decisions. I'm doing, I'm making the calls. I'm, I can work if I want to or not and shut something down or turn something on, or I don't have to, you know, it's, it's me and it's fulfilling and people are appreciating what I'm doing. And, and so it was like, all of a sudden this one thing started to make just as much money, but the fulfillment meter was so much higher and it started to say like, okay, this will allow me to spend time with my family and go home. And this will allow me to uh, do this thing. And, um, and it just kind of became kind of an obvious response for me. It was like, it's not about the money. It's about the fact that I can go home to be with my family. I can, you know, I can build something where I'm helping other people. Uh, I can control my life, my future. I can dictate what that looks like. Uh, and I'm just not being fulfilled by the Marine Corps. Had they, had I still been able to deploy and, and do all of the things that I really enjoyed about the Marine Corps. Um, and then, oh, by the way, that last year, as I'm really still like trying to confirm my decision, I don't know necessarily. Are, are you, are you, when did you get out or are you still? I, I retired uh, one year ago. So last year uh, in November was my official retirement date. Then you were probably right around the same timing. I got out October of 21. Um, so, oh, by the way, as I'm being less fulfilled, hey, Dave, we need to sit you in some extremism training. And now you need to learn about pronouns. And by the way, transsexual training. And I was like, okay, now it's time to move on. This is my sign. Like, this is, I have the choice. I have the ability. I'm not being fulfilled. And now this is enough for me. Um so it was kind of all those things at once, and really it all boiled down to the fulfillment. Had I still been enjoying what I was doing, I would have stuck around. Um, but the last six months, so I did I did four months of SkillBridge um, for a real estate company here in town as a with my real estate license, and so that was cool. That was unique. Uh, and the the six months leading up to that was just business as usual. I wasn't super worried about it. Uh, it was just a weird experience for me. Um, I was in a command that was, 
I don't want to say the command was toxic, just some of the leadership. Uh, you know, I had a target on my back. I think once people realized what I was doing, um, somehow they, I don't know if they were threatened or if they just decided that because I was having some success that it meant I didn't care. So even though I had like my last fitness report was a hundred, I was top dog on the tree, even amongst the two of us in the office. I was, and I even told the guy as I was leaving, I was like, Hey, sir, I'm getting out. He's not, please grade him higher than me. He's been a friend of mine for like 15 years, you know, and I still got graded higher. Um, and so, you know, despite that, I was getting, I, I had a target on my back. I mean, I had a Lieutenant Colonel who was, uh, you know, would, would make it a point on conference calls to just make sly remarks about wasting my time podcasting at night rather than working on the Marine Corps or trying to leave the office at 4.30 on the dot so I could go do this other thing that, you know, but the reality is I was just done with work and I'm getting out of the Marine Corps. Um, and so there was just all this weird stuff going on. I don't really know. I, I feel like I had another point I was going to make there, but, uh, oh, so COVID hits, we're doing all this stuff. I went to do TAPS, right? TAPS is a DOD required thing for leaving the military. This is how bad my command was towards the end, my leadership. They were so frustrated by my success and or thing. TAPS was virtual, right? Because of COVID, you couldn't do it in person. When they found out TAPS was virtual, they made me come into the office and sit at my desk to watch TAPS on my desk computer rather than at my house because they were worried that I would be on the same computer that I have access to work on my personal stuff. And then while I'm sitting at my desk computer, GS 13 and Lieutenant Colonel are coming in and saying, Hey, we need you to work on this PowerPoint. And I'm like, I'm on taps. And they're like, we don't care. You're in the office. I'm like, no, this is DOD mandated training for my EAS. I don't care what you're telling me. Like I'm, I'm paying attention to this and you know, you don't really care about taps, but it's like, come on guys. Like you're going to tell me that everybody in this building who's retiring gets to go to taps virtually except me because what I have a podcast. Therefore I can't be trusted to do taps at my house. So it's just, it's a long rant. You're bringing up some, 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 some odd memories. It was a very weird last six months. Yeah. No, that's why I wanted to dig into it. Cause I know there's always a story behind the story and maybe that story isn't the one that always gets told. And that's the one I like to dig into because I like to get the details, especially like I assume TAPS is transition assistance program. It's like the army. <clears throat> yeah. We have the same kind of similar thing in the, in the army. And yeah, it's DOD mandated. So I'm sure they probably call it the same across all the services. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, um, I'm, I'm glad, thank you for sharing that with me. Like, I'm glad you, you brought up those points. Um, and, and I can imagine in the Marine Corps, it's a little bit more regimented. And of course, like you said, your specific situation, um, maybe there was some envy or some like, you know, people getting their, their feathers ruffled because you honestly, I mean, you did give a shit. You were there in the office and working, but you honestly didn't really give a shit because you had, you know, your, your, you set your life up so that you could, you know, you did the four or five years of work up to that point so that you could then transition easily out and know for sure you have a stable income and you've got, 
the security for your family and your children. Like, duh. It, there comes a point, and this is why that you know they joke about like people who win the lottery or whatever buying their way out of the contract. But there comes a point where, when you're sitting in an office with like GS13s and majors and lieutenant colonels, and you've got a a lieutenant colonel or a colonel just lambasting you about how your PowerPoint presentation looked like crap in front of the colonel and the the fonts were wrong and stuff, and in the back of your head you're like. I made $10,000 last month for 12 hours worth of work every week. Like it's, it's very hard not to be like, I make more money than this guy. And he's worried about what color font I used on a PowerPoint. What am I doing with my life? And like, unfortunately, like I tried very hard not to show any of that. And I don't know if I showed it or not to him. Um, But, but he definitely like, like there were there were a couple times where there were a few different people in the office who who it showed. In fact, it's funny because I'm technically still a reservist with that unit in the IMA, and they haven't called me yet in the last 51 weeks to drill. And I've called and been like, "Hey, I have until March to do my 30 days. Are you guys going to use me?" And the GS13 who didn't really like me is like, "No, no, I don't know if we need you. Like he just doesn't want me to show up to drill. So I'm going to legitimately fall out of the reserves because this guy just doesn't want." to afford me the opportunity to drill <laughs> didn't invite me to the ball didn't even tell me i got promoted in the reserves i found out uh almost a month later when i got a, a notice in the mail about something else and was like he says i'm a gunnery sergeant that's weird <laughs> like it's so weird i'm like oh well these guys these guys really don't like me <laughs> and on that same note i mean you 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 don't just after 13 years you don't just have to do reserve time like you chose to stay in some form or capacity in in the service. Um, so let me just preface it with kind of a, a question that kind of leads into what I'm trying to get a point to. Um, what would be the one thing that you miss the most about being on active duty? And what was the one thing that then kept you to the, kept your um, attention to the point where you were like, you know, I would really like to continue this as a reservist or an IMA soldier um, at least because I still enjoy being a member of the armed services. I still enjoy being a Marine. Um, what, what would that be? I think the thing that I miss most is the people being around Marines. Um, and I think the thing that kept me as I was debating the reserves, there were a couple things, right? Uh, one is that I'm not going to point all of the fingers at career planners, the way that they explain how GI Bill is transferred is done very poorly. And so during my reenlistments, the question was, do you want to transfer your GI Bill right now? And I would say, can I do that later? And they would say, yes. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll do it later. It was not explained that you can only do it during a reenlistment. And if you don't do it right now and you don't reenlist again, you will not be able to transfer. And so we recommend that you transfer 1% to your kids. That way, in the future, you can change the percentage at any point in time and you're covered. But if you miss this chance, then you're screwed. Um, so a big point for me was was the reserves so that I could actually transfer my GI Bill to my kid because I had missed that boat because I had had that conversation and thought I was going to be able to transfer it down the road. And because I was not staying in the Marine Corps, I wasn't going to be able to. 
Um, I still might not be able to, because if I drop out of the reserves, I miss that service obligation. Um, and so I won't be able to transfer my JIBL to my kid. But uh, so that was one. TRICARE was another benefit, obviously. Um, but the, the main the main one other than the people uh, was one of the main reasons I reenlisted the, the time before that. I was with 3rd Marine Regiment. And at like 630 at night, we got a text that just a mass text that said all staff and officers, all hands, chapel, 30 minutes. And no idea what it was. And we all, they were like, we don't care about uniform. We don't care about anything as you are here now. And it was during time that uh, Russia or China, one of them was being stupid, Korea. I don't know. One of those big four. And I, it, it ended up, of course, in true military fashion. It was a hazing brief because some stupid incident had happened. But at the time, I remember all the staff and CEOs on my street had come out on this on the base housing and were talking because we were all in the same area, same units. And we all thought like, this is it. The balloon just went up like this feels like we are going to combat. And the adrenaline and the, the excitement and the adventure and the feelings that all came with that. I was like, I can't I can't hang up the hat like this is this is what I wanted. Um, and so part of me was part of me wanted to stay in the reserves because if I keep my foot in the reserves and something kicks off, then I can throw my hand up and say, nope, that's the one thing I still wanted from the Marine Corps. Put me back in coach. Um, so yeah, I'd say people and people in the ability to deploy if something comes up. Um, and the nice thing with reserves is you kind of have the option. You can volunteer for the deployment, but uh, at least for my first two years off active duty, the way that I went into the reserves, uh, I can also veto any kind of active orders. So that's, that's nice. Yeah. Only, only because I did like a direct affiliation program. That was one of my perks was, uh, for 24 months, I can deny. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And that's why I like being able to bring on anybody since it's my podcast and I can do whatever I want, um, bring on anybody from any service and, and start to learn and dig into some of those similarities in the hopes that maybe, you know, somebody from another branch or service who's in the transition offices or, even folks that that have influence over HR policies and things like that can try to try to gather some information and some knowledge and maybe find something useful. And, and, you know, it's like we, we say in the army, we train, train to train to fight. So we train as we're actually fighting. Um, but then in practice, we don't actually do that. Like when we deploy, we do joint operations, but then we come back to the rear and we don't talk to any of those services, right? <laughs> we literally cut them off. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. It's in the hopes that somebody may or may not run across this and, and come with better ideas and better ways to, to fix some of those things in transition and, and see some of those small little problems that are actually really bigger problems. And so you already had, let me, let me actually back up just a tad bit. So the last, I don't know when you started doing this, but I, I know I read somewhere in your bio, you were teaching financial uh, planning classes and things like that while you were on active duty. How did that come about? And, and um, how, how was that? Was it, the, did you feel like it was a really successful thing? Did it bring you joy? Well, you know, like everything the military does, they kind of suck the fun out of it. Right. It's like uh, jumping out of airplanes, right? Anybody who's airborne in the army will tell you. Uh, in fact, I have a lot of friends who are 
are or were airborne in the army who have never jumped out of a plane elsewhere because it ruined the experience so much they refused to try it recreationally, which is funny because they would probably enjoy it recreationally. Um, you know, or the Zodiac boats, the recon guys, they're like, yeah, it looks so cool. It's the most miserable experience in the world. Um, no, so I, I went, I volunteered. Most people get voluntold because it's not a school that people want to go to, but it's just a collateral, like a B-billet um, course. Uh called every branch of service has something kind of similar um i don't know if the term changes per branch but in the marine corps it's a command financial specialist it's a week-long school basic finance stuff i mean auto loans thrift savings plan va loan i mean it's it's very basic level stuff budgeting credit whatever um the reality is that i already knew 90%, 90%, or 95% of what they taught in that course when I went through it. I volunteered to go through it for two reasons. One, I thought that if I'm talking about all of this stuff to service members and vets online, I was kind of worried that somebody might say something to me about not having any kind of credentials at all and, and helping service members. So I was like, hey, if I've gone through this course, and someone tries to say something that it's like, hey, look, the military told me they think I'm qualified to talk about this stuff to units, so I should be allowed to talk about it in a blog. Um, I figured that kind of gave me at least enough credibility to feel comfortable talking about that stuff. Uh, and two, I thought I'd be able to help my unit, right? I was like, I can run these courses and and classes and teach service members. Uh, and and I did, I did get to do in like a you know, like safety stand down or like big brief, I got to do one or two all hands, you know, like 45 minute presentations, basic finance stuff. And those were very fulfilling. I got really good response. I, I helped people out. In fact, uh, just the other day, uh, a gentleman who's a, I think he's a major now in the Navy, who's a medical officer reached out to me and was like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I sat in that class like four years ago and, uh, told me a bunch of stuff he's done. And one of them's like bought a house that he made like three or $400,000 on when he sold it. And, you know, like he's done very well and he was thanking me and I'm like, Oh, well, that's really cool. So like, you know, it it was fulfilling in that regard. Um, Outside of that though, what it turned into, what I realized very quickly is while I'm trying to use this command financial specialist thing as like a, Hey, if your service members thinking of buying a car or, thinking of getting married or, uh, you know, I'd love to come talk to your, your unit or your, um, platoon or give a class or do a lunch and learn and help your service members learn how to invest. Uh, please let them come hang out with me and let's teach them about this stuff so they can be successful. What it quickly turned into is the only people that ever came to talk to me was when like Sergeant so-and-so drags in PFC dum-dum and says, this guy bought a Mustang with 30% interest loan. How do we fix this? Or this guy just got married to a stripper. What do we do now? You know? And so all I did as the command or, or it was like, I'm EASing, please sign my budget, you know? So it was like the only thing I ever did in that billet other than the like two classes was basically like, I already ruined my finances. What now? Or I just want out of the military. Please sign this thing that I don't care about. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as fulfilling as I had hoped it would be. But apparently I helped one or two people. Do you get a chance to go back and revisit some 
like military units or go out and do any public speaking for, for any of the military units out there? Not yet. Uh, hopefully one day, you know, I can't do it in like a professional capacity. There's all these rules about teaching on base. If you're not affiliated, yada, da, da, da. I'm trying to get my book onto some of the professional reading lists. I've got it in the hands of some, some generals or at least some generals aides, uh, and some colonels. Um, my old regimental commander is the Dean at the Naval Academy for the Marine Corps. And so he's got my book, um, the one star in charge of Marine Corps recruiting command on the West coast. Uh, I'm like best friends with a major who works next to him. And he knows me from when he was a Colonel and ran the recruiting station district that I was a recruiter in. Um, and I was like the recruiter of the or station commander of the year. Or so, uh, like he knows who I am. And so he's had a book handed to him. So there's like a couple CGs that have hand, had my book handed to him subtly. Uh, I think the highest level is a three star on the East coast. And I'm just like, I'm trying to like subtly inch it into like the Sergeant major of the Marine Corps and the commandant to try to get it on the commandant's reading list. Uh, I would love if the opportunity ever unfolded to go and go to some of the big bases and just, yeah, no, no pitch, no selling of books. You know, just talk, just like, hey guys, you use the VA loan, the TSP, and sell you crap. I don't, whatever. Like this is, do this. Set yourself up for success. Um, you know, and and I'd also love to get my book in the PX, but that's apparently a royal pain in the butt as well. You know, there's all kinds of hoops to jump through. Yeah, yeah, I find. Um even trying to get in contact with like the PAO on base and get some base media access, even for things like that. So I can potentially go to like the tap office or to the VA office on base and have some professionals who are in the trenches every day doing good work to try to get people transitioned as easily as possible on the show so that I can talk with them and let them tell, you know, their stories and tell about how they do things and give some quality information. But it's, uh, it's tricky. <laughs> it's tricky to navigate those waters. Uh, it really is. Um, let me ask you a question that maybe will bring up some more things in the past, but but we'll see where it goes. Um, have you ever had a really, really big failure moment in the course of the military or even in the course of your entire life that you look back on now and you you think, hey, that actually set me up for this success that I'm experiencing now, whether that's personal, professional, uh, with your marriage or anything else. You know, in the in the military, it would be MARSOC. So the uh, the Marine Corps Special Operations Command I tried out in 2012, January, and I had I can't even say I blew my knee out. I just had some really bad IT band issues. Um, I couldn't stand up. I mean, I had a pretty gnarly spill during a, a land nav course and a guy behind me slid as well and hit, you know, it was like slide down a hill, slides down behind me and knee landed wrong on a tree and blah, 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 blah. Um, ultimately, DOR dropped a request and uh, with the intent that six months down the road healed up, I could go back. Uh, and in that six months, the Marine Corps was like, here's the recruiting list for people we're going to force to go on recruiting duty. And um, so that failure to make it through the selection process for special forces ultimately 
sent me to Springfield, Missouri for three years as a recruiter where I learned sales and became the staff NCIC of the year towards the end of recruiting. I met my wife and got into real estate. So I would consider that to be a failure that ultimately led to success. Um, I also had a real estate deal that I bought in 2018 that was a pretty crazy like lease option deal that um, just wasn't what it was supposed to be. Um, I guess I can say this now with confidence. Um, it was a scam. I mean, it was fraudulent misrepresentation and uh, amongst other things. And I can say that confidently because after four years, we won a $220,000 judgment, which was all of our money back plus interest. Uh, and so we just settled like three weeks ago and got all our money back after four years of uh, legal debate. And, uh, you know, so that, that was a pretty gnarly failure with a lot of lessons learned that uh, I would say ultimately will set me up for success just because it taught me a ton about how to do business, who to trust, the legal process. I mean, and talk about an education, four years of litigation uh, with real estate stuff and trusting your gut and going through a process when, you know, who knows what's going to be the outcome uh, just because in your gut, you know that you're right to come out the other side is, uh, it's an interesting, uh, beast. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, I appreciate your, your candidness on that. It's a, it's a tough question to answer sometimes. Um, how do you feel about mentors in business? Do you think they're important? And do you have a past mentor or even a present mentor who's really, really, truly impacted your life greatly? Yeah, I, I think they're critical. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, a specific, like a single mentor. Uh, I've had a lot of mentors in a lot of ways for a lot of things. And I would consider one of my main superpowers to be networking. And I would say that I'm, I've been fortunate enough to have a network that's big enough at this point that if I have a question or something I want guidance on, I either have somebody in my network I can go to, or I can ask my network who to go to and be introduced to someone. Um, to solve whatever that problem is, uh, or I can, you know, pay for coaching. I would consider that a mentor as well. I I've done that with executive coaches or whatever, um, or mindset coaches, but, um, you know, if I want to learn about wholesaling, I've got, well, I, I actually got into a wholesaling coaching program for free because the guy who runs the program is a really good friend and allowed me in because he thought that, you know, if I did well and succeeded that I would bring other people into his program, which, which worked out for him. Um, so, you know, so there's a lot of things that have come with that. I, I think mentors are probably the most important thing. In fact, it's been kind of my, my not buzzword, but when people ask on podcasts, a lot of times like, what's your number one tip for people who want to do X, Y, Z? Um, my answer lately has been to filter the advice you receive through the lens of has the person giving me this advice achieved what I want to achieve? Do they live the life that I want to live? Like you wouldn't ask your mom 
how to become a world-class MMA fighter. You would ask a world-class MMA fighter, right? You would go to, you would hire an MMA coach. Your mom has your best interest at heart. She loves you. She wants to see you succeed. She does not want to see you get murdered in a cage. But that doesn't mean she knows how to teach you how to be an MMA fighter. And yet, for some reason, when people are like, I'm going to be a real estate investor, and their mom, who loves them and still has their best interest at heart and doesn't want to see them go bankrupt, but may have never even owned a house, starts telling them all the things that are bad about real estate, they listen. It's the same thing. It's like, why would you do that? Go listen to someone who owns $200 million worth of real estate. Surround yourself with those people. Like, mom, I love you. This is just not the avenue that you're best suited to be my mentor. And I'm sorry, you know, filter the, filter the advice that way. So yeah. Yeah. It's actually great advice. It's the, uh, you're the, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, I guess, kind of thing. I think, I think we read a lot of the same things and, and listen to a lot of the same podcasts. <laughs> Looking at the wall behind you, I think anything I read, you've probably read. <laughs> I don't know. Is there any Ayn Rand back there? Uh, there is not. There is not. But there's Jocko Willink. He's up here somewhere, right around here. Just like my go-to to know if somebody's a glutton for punishment because her books are like a thousand pages, but I love them. I have some thousand page books, but not that particular one. Um, Ayn Rand or Nassim Taleb or like my... If you've made it through those, then you're just, you like reading way too much because they're, they're tough. Yeah. I've read all of Nassim's books. So yeah. And Jordan Peterson and some other wonderful homes. Life is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. We could do this all day. Yeah. I can see some good ones back there. Yeah. We actually get this one of the questions here. So we'll get to that one in a second. Um, if you could actually go back and uh, so you say your son is 12 now, 13. Uh, so I have a. Uh, 14-year-old stepson and a six-year-old, well, almost six, uh, biological. Okay, 14. So so you, this is probably a little bit closer to home and and maybe a little bit more understandable. Um, if you could go back and have a short meeting with your 16-year-old self, and it doesn't necessarily have to be 16, I think that that's kind of the key transitional year where you're almost an adult and you're almost a child still and you're and you're thinking broader beyond just like your home and your city and high school um you're thinking about things well into the future college you know potentially wife and kids uh, career etc um but if you could go back and talk to your 16 year old self um, could you put us in the context of a place and a time where we actually meet up and what would you actually, what would that conversation look like? <laughs> well, place and time. Let's see. So I'd be in little rock. I'd be homeschooled. Uh, I would look like Hyde from that 70s show and everyone would probably assume I'm a stoner, but I would not have ever tried drugs, uh, or had alcohol yet. Well, I mean, probably had alcohol, but not been drunk. Um, wouldn't have had, wouldn't have lost my virginity. Wouldn't have even kissed a girl yet. Uh, I was, I mean, as sheltered as they come. Um, and I was also rebelling against that because I had this like urge to be accepted. And so uh, I'm a, I don't know if you're familiar with the disc profile, but I'm like a 99 I. So I have like this unbelievable urge to be liked by everybody, which is, you know, good and bad, but I, I'm also really good at reading people. Like there's good things that come with it too, but that's the downside is that I want 
people to like me. And I'm that bit me in high school, right? Because I had this ego to try to make up for being insecure about being the sheltered homeschooled kid that didn't fit in. Um, and so I was this like dorky kid who worked in a coffee shop and was trying to prove that I was still cool and had adventure and was trying to be larger than life and prove to everyone that I was cooler than I really was so that I'd fit in and be liked and accepted. And well, at the same time, I had a big network. Everybody knew me from the coffee shop and going to a big church and, you know, whatever. Um, I think was the second part of that question, what I would tell myself. Yeah. What would that conversation look like? Well, if you had like 30 minutes to sit down with your 16 year old self, what, what, what would you talk about? Man, that's a good question. Without giving financial advice. <laughs> you know, because of the way that transpired where I like built this ego to try to compensate for being insecure. And then I joined the military and that got stifled real quick by the like, nobody cares. You don't matter. You're the Marine Corps. Rah, rah. Um, it ultimately ended up as this massive imposter syndrome. And I've been battling that for a long time where I doubt everything. Um, so I would probably sit down with myself and have a real conversation about doubting my capabilities and not being afraid to take the governor off. You know, you know, the, uh, you're a guy. So I assume that you've probably been in this situation. Like when you're in high school and you're horsing around with the guys and you're wrestling and you're grappling and whatever, fighting or boxing, whatever. And you're just having fun. And when you're just having fun and you're just wrestling and grappling and whatever, you always hold back. And it's, it's, there's a very tangible difference. The moment someone gets mad and anger comes in, it's like all of a sudden the level of effort that you can put out, like the, the actual force doubles, right? Triples. I mean, the, the, the difference, the disparity in how much you could actually exude is, is stupid. Like my 14 year old wants to fight. And he's always like, I could take, he's like three inches taller than me. So he thinks he could take me. And, uh, you know, it's this whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever, dude. Um, but the reality is that I'm a little nervous to grapple with him because I know that I would hold back and that would give him an advantage because he wouldn't. And, you know, but if I don't hold back, then I'm actually going to hurt him. And so it's like that thing. Well, we do the same thing psychologically not in grappling, right? And in business or in going for your goals or whatever, we are afraid to go all in because what if you go all in and you fail, or at least I am. And so I still do that. I still find myself not giving everything to a project or a goal or leaning all the way into something that might be big or an investment or you know, and, and so I, I would probably have a real long conversation with myself about taking the governor off and saying, Hey, look, when you're fighting and you're horsing around with friends, cool, you can play it safe. But when you're going in the business game or the investing game or the, your goals or the military or whatever else, like in life, like give it everything. Don't, don't hold back. Don't leave anything in the tank. Don't, don't worry about if other people think you went overboard, nobody's going to care if they do, then they weren't the people you need to associate with hang out with the A players, go for it. 
Uh, so I would have that conversation. Um, I would have the conversation about imposter syndrome, doubting myself. Uh, probably tell myself that weed is actually really awesome. And uh, I shouldn't hate people for enjoying it as much as I hated on them in high school. Um, I wouldn't know that, though, because I've never tried it because, you know, DOD. But but now that I'm about to be out of the reserves and Missouri legalized it, I'm going to try it eventually. So um, it sounds better than alcohol. So, um, man, I don't, I don't know. I mean, those are probably the big ones. Maybe, uh, I don't know, don't, don't geo-bachelor if you don't have to, because the two years of marital problems that it causes or, you know, not, not worth it. That was a decision we made that didn't have to be made. Yeah, again, thank you. That's uh, I, I really appreciate your candidness. I'm, I'm super pumped that I have you on the show because I really like having these kind of conversations and this this excites me and makes me happy. Um, no, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so let's go in the complete opposite direction. If you were allotted, let's say, 20 minutes, which is about the average TED Talk, 2018 minutes, I guess, maybe. Uh, let's say 20 minutes to give a a briefing or say like maybe a keynote opening to some training for a group of military members who are transitioning out of the military. Uh, what would your topic or thesis be based around? So the knee-jerk reaction is to tell you what has been my favorite topic to speak about lately, and that is networking and content because of a few things. One – Networking is my superpower. And I think that if you know how to network, nobody's outside of your realm of being able to reach and you can do anything you put your mind to, right? Like you can, I mean, I've, I've had a podcast for three, four years. I don't put nearly as much effort into it as I should. My outreach isn't there. It's not sponsored. I have no employees working on it. I just do everything myself. And I put almost no effort into guest outreach other than like the occasional like email. Hey, would you be interested in being my podcast? Um, very rarely am I actually reaching out to guests. There's maybe two or three big guests that I've ever sent more than one email. Like I'll send a email and I don't like follow up except for like Patrick Bed David. I have hounded Patrick Bed David's scheduler for like months and I'm never going to hear back, but like every two weeks because I want him. Um, but I've had Grant Cardone on the show, Robert Kiyosaki, Brandon Turner, uh, Pace Morby's recording next month, Ryan Pineda, like all these big real estate people, um, the CEO of Bigger Pockets, the biggest real estate forum in the world, uh, on my show, just from networking and making connections with people. Uh, about to have, hopefully, making a connection next week with Cameron Harold, the author of Vivid Vision. Um, uh, hoping to... Uh, I, I don't even know if I want to say this one out loud. I don't know if it's going to happen, but, um, a, a friend of mine is trying to make an intro because he just met, uh, and had dinner with, um, 
I'm not going to name any names, but a, a former Marine who is most recently known for his role as a Sith Lord in the most recent Star Wars movies. Um, so trying to get some, you know, but so all that being said, like networking, I think is, is like a great way to open your door, uh, especially like leaving the military. If you can network your way around, like you can do anything. Um, content, I think, like, I think building a brand, having a podcast or, or building a brand opens so many doors. Like my real estate is great, but I would, if I had to choose between losing all my real estate and keeping my brand or losing my brand and keeping all my real estate, I, I would lose all my real estate. I could, I could rebuild my real estate portfolio much faster with my brand in place than I could rebuild my brand with the cash flow of my real estate. And you can do so much with a brand. So anyway, all that being said, I really enjoy giving that presentation because in my sphere, people all, they talk about houses and, and all this stuff, which is great, but they don't talk about the fact that like, because I built this network and this community and built the content and people just naturally organically find their way into my network, I can send an email. I, I literally did this last month. A friend of mine needed $685,000 for 30 days to bridge the gap on a loan for a, a hotel they were buying. I sent an email. Four people responded. Three said yes. One person funded it four days later. Like, that's pretty cool. And I'm actually going to, I didn't know this. I didn't ask for this, but he's actually going to give me one point. So $6,850 as a thank you for helping him raise the money for the bridge loan. Um, which is great. Like I made $7,000 for sending an email, one email. Uh, but that was through networking over like all four of those four guys, three are people I met two, two on Instagram, one in my Facebook group. The fourth, this is where it's crazy. The fourth wasn't in my network. Somebody on my email list saw the email forwarded it to this guy and said this seems right up your alley if you're interested reply all and he replied all now he's in my network um so anyway all that being said i love that topic because it's like hey there's literally nothing you can't accomplish if you build a community around something you're passionate about and get people involved there's so much opportunity there so i love talking about that um because it puts the ball in your court for whatever you want to do. Uh, as far as like a actual legitimate profound topic, it, I would probably just talk about, I mean, I'd probably try to combine like the VA loan house hack, which is like the tangible, like, Hey, this is how you can avoid going homeless and finding your purpose because I think that solves the two biggest struggles that service members have when they leave the military. You know, the, the biggest risks people always think of when they think of vets leaving the military is ending up homeless or ending up killing themselves. And I think if I can teach a service member how to buy a house with very low or no money out of pocket and buy a house where they can do it and have the tenants paying their mortgage, that's huge. That's probably not going to go homeless. I don't know what that talk would look like. I haven't figured that out yet. I haven't figured out, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of working my way through that transition phase. In a lot of ways, I haven't really found my peer group 
depending on how things end up going with life over the next couple months, I don't even know if I'm going to stay in this town permanently. Um, but it, I think that would, that would probably be where I'd go. You know, my ultimate goal with the brand is to teach service members and vets how to build wealth through real estate, entrepreneurship, and personal finance so they don't end up homeless or dead. Yeah, I actually like the knee-jerk reaction. I think it's, I mean, they they both kind of tie into each other, right? And it's actually one of my questions about personal brand. And I, I kind of want to pull the thread on that a little bit. So the the way I hear you telling me about it, as far as how that talk would look or how it would be structured, um, you talked about personal brand, you talked about finding your identity. And I think that ultimately ties into uh, your credibility, not, not just as a human being, but as a friend, a father, uh, you know, uh, a, a business partner, whatever capacity that happens to be in. Um, and I, I'm trying to connect the dots between it. That's why I asked the question so I can selfishly figure, figure these things out on my own. But, um, it, it seems like it all ties back to the credibility. Cause when you, when you network with people and people genuinely, bring you into their network or they share your email with somebody else in their network, that's because you hold credibility with them. Right. And that credibility just kind of expands from, from your own network unintentionally. Right. It's, it's a, it's a byproduct of building a, a cohesive network of people and people trusting in you and you have credibility with them. And then that credibility kind of just radiates out from there into their other expanding groups. And that's kind of like how a network works. It's that network effect where you make friends with one person and they introduce you to two other people. And it's kind of like a pyramid scheme, but not a pyramid scheme. So, um, but yeah, as far as the the credibility piece, do you feel like that, that personal brand is a way to kind of build that up and, and not only having other people trust in you, but building your own kind of self-esteem and your own pride in who you are as a person and, and kind of leading to that, like what your purpose is in life and, and figuring that, figuring that out. Yeah, it's been huge. Um, I mean, I, I never intended on the brand being this, it wasn't even my idea to start the brand. Uh, it's kind of a weird story, but I mean, I basically just started it as a recommendation from a friend to help me learn how to write. And the idea was just to document what I was learning. Right. Like, oh, I'm learning about this. Let me write an article about it. And then that morphed into, hey, people are asking me this question. I'll answer. Let me let me do some research on that thing. And I'll write about that one, because now that I've learned about it, I'll answer their question in more detail. Uh, and then slowly it became more positioned as like kind of an expert role as I actually became very knowledgeable and stuff. Um, and so it absolutely came with a lot of credibility and confidence, but it was only because the way that I got there was by, I mean, I've got 300 articles up on my site. You know, I've written a 90,000 word book. I've done almost 200 podcast episodes. I've got five or 600 YouTube videos out. I mean, it's the research and the hours and the time and the, um, so it's credibility. Yeah. Uh, and it's, also like the evergreen content where people can find you. Like I did a lot of, okay, if I wanted somebody to, if I want a young service member to find me and learn, you know, like instead of, instead of somebody who's 
already made all of the mistakes finding my channel. They find me already because they're looking for me. But how do I get in front of the E1 who doesn't know that he needs to know about basic finances? Then I would try to make videos that are like five best duty stations to choose if you're, you know, whatever, or, uh, you know, best MOSs in the military. Let's see if I can get them before they join the military. Uh, best branch of the military. Let's see if I can get them before. Um, and as people research it, they find my channel and then they get into the fold. And then, um, and so, you know, it, it builds that credibility because they get into the channel and they see all the other stuff and they see the community and they see the group and they see all the, there's all these things for sure. So, but I think, I think intellectual property and content, I, I think it's going forward is going to be one of the most valuable things uh, in the future in a lot of ways. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of a whole new world. I think we're just scratching the surface of what it's going to be like with personal brands. And when you say intellectual property, you mean from like an artistic standpoint, like your, your creative uh, writing or your creative speaking or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the podcasting and the, the blog posts and the videos and just really anything that you put out there. I think there's a lot of value to that, that, uh, I mean, you know, brands are, brands are willing to pay for your endorsement as your community grows, um, which is something you gotta be careful with, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity that comes with, with the personal brand as well, because they see it as credibility. And so, um, I think the content stuff, I think there's a, a big upside for sure. Yeah. It's going to get very, very interesting, especially with, um, with the, the crypto movement now and with NFTs and, um, I don't know if you're digging into any of that. I mention it here and there, sprinkle little bits of it throughout the the podcast and throughout my posts because of the fact that it's something that I'm really closely engaged with. Um, but also I think people are going to, I mean, people are going to miss the boat either way, but, um, it's definitely one of those things that you can get in early while it's still early and, and position yourself so that you at least understand it, understand how it works, understand the ramifications of it, the, the, the reach and potential of what it can possibly do, especially with things like IP, um, where you can lock your IP down completely and, you know, put it on the blockchain and have it on the ledger that's, you know, there and immutable and all those kind of things. So it's, yeah, it's funny that you've, that you mentioned it that way, as far as the intellectual property and how it's going to look in the future, it's, it's drastically rapidly changing right now. So on that same note, um, if you could make one LinkedIn post that you knew for sure, maybe it was a cosign post with somebody else, uh, that you knew for sure was going to reach at least a million eyeballs and you only had two or three sentences to do it without making it a marketing post, what would that post be? Like if you wanted to put something out into the world or put some kind of good vibe out into the world or something, something along those lines, but not, not like a marketing post, what would it be? And so I, I know, I know what the first thing that popped in my head is, but I, keep thinking that there's something else that is a more common catchphrase for myself. And I'm trying to think if it'll pop up, but the first thing that 
popped in my head is just the simple phrase that I say a lot of times, and that is just, just be a good person. Like most of the world's problems would be solved if people just focused on being a good person, not what the other person did and not just shut the heck up. Just be good. Don't worry about what other people are doing. And and I'm not saying I'm good at it. I'm not saying it's easy. My wife would probably tell you that I'm, you know, I mean, who knows, right? It's funny because I've mentioned this now once or twice and everybody on the show is probably like, wow, Dave must be a real jerk because I'm giving no context at all about what's gone on for the last two years. But let me at least assure you guys that I have tried um, and it is not for lack of effort and lack of wanting. Um, you know, I'd like to consider myself trying to be a good person, but I don't know that, you know, who knows, but that would be my, my, my scream to the world, right? Either that or, uh, what my recruiter instructor once said, and this might've been the thing that I was trying to think of earlier was, um, my recruiter instructor, when I first joined, used to tell me the secret to recruiting is if they like you, they'll join. So that's the sales. That's the secret to sales. If they like you, you're in. So there you go. Be a good person and be likable. Kind of the same thing. Maybe. I don't know. I guess being a good person doesn't necessarily mean anyone has to like you. Because right now, in today's day and day, not to get on the political spectrum or in the whatever, but... uh. I don't know if you've, do you have the book, uh, um, coddling of the American mind hiding back there or, or, uh, okay. Well, we won't go down that rabbit hole, but, um, or factfulness or, uh, there's like a, a, a series of books that I've read over the last couple of years that all talk about, you know, cultural things and generational differences and, and essentially how what's going on in our country is actually not really that crazy it's just generational cycles and it's going to happen regardless of anything else because it's exactly the like hey we had really strong men and then because of that we babied our kids and then because of that we you know it's like every 80 years there's a cycle and it's totally predictable that between this year and this year everything's going to go to hell and then you know whatever um all that being said it's like it is what it is but uh you know that being said, being a good person does not necessarily mean anybody's going to like you, especially not in today's day and age. Because being good is not necessarily what anybody thinks is popular these days. Doing the right thing, not popular. Yeah, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, the, the trick is to be a good person and then don't give a damn what everybody else thinks and says about it what you're doing if you know you're doing the right thing and you could sleep at night with a conscience then you're good <laughs> um is, is the book that you're referring to or trying to allude to uh called the fourth turning yeah that's sitting right next to it i've got i was actually just showing this to my assistant yesterday so i have my bookshelf like broken out into like business books i've read real estate books i've read personal development books i've read um, there's like different sections and then there's like under the personal development books that I've read, there's like not political, but like cultural books I've read. 
and on that is like the communist manifesto the ayn rand books uh manufacturing consent which is like how the media controls the narrative um uh, conjuring or uh, coddling of the american mind the fourth turning factfulness uh there's one or two others and they're all books that like any one person could read one book and probably be like hmm seems kind of conspiratorial but then if you actually dig through like the facts and the data and you read all of them you're like dude there's no way like these are all different authors with different backgrounds, with different beliefs coming at it from different political spectrums who came to the same conclusion. Oh, and the, what's the other one? Uh, Artisan, who's like a, he was a real estate guy who died of cancer and the book's like hard times, create strong men, whatever. Um, and his isn't necessarily like a cultural book so much as just like a, his personal observ observations about society changing, but he's very blunt about it. Um, and he died of cancer and he was like 32 real, real bummer. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's all books like that. And yeah, that fourth turning book is that's a, and then you've got, uh, Ray Dalio's new book. Um, that's in, I mean, yeah, but the fourth turning is like the book you, you read through it. And by the end of it, you're like, okay, so between 2022 and 2028, uh, Essentially, the U.S. is not going to be on top of the world anymore, and we're going to be in chaos. Cool. So now what? <laughs> um, and and it's, but it, but it, but at the same time, it almost puts you at peace about like, you know, everybody's up in arms about politics in the U.S. and you're like, it's not even really politics. It's it's generational. It's just it's it's, you know, and I, it's funny because I see it. You know, I mean, my, my kids are, you know, like you can see it in the general, you can see it by how parents are raising their kids. You go to like soccer games and you're like, I sit in, I sit in baseball games and soccer games. And I'm just like, how do these parents, like, there's one sports team locally. Uh, if anyone's in Springfield, it's Kickapoo. Um, I always joke. Anytime we go to a game, I'm like, do these parents ever get to enjoy a game? Like all they do is hate everything that happens. Like they're always trying to fight the refs and fight the umpires and getting kicked out of the games and nothing's ever their kids faults. And it's like, it's such a cultural thing. All their kids grow up is sheltered entitled bricks and everybody hates playing against them because of it. And it's like, you just, you see it, you know? And you're like, those kids are going to grow up exactly like the book said but then they're going to raise their kids in that way and their kids are going to grow up as the strong man or woman who's like, holy crap, this is not right. You know, and it's like, it just makes sense every 20 years. And it's, yeah, anyway, <laughs> we can go down the rabbit hole, but anyone listening, if you want to read a book that'll change your perspective on why the world is the way the world is, man, that thing's got some pretty crazy data points. And he goes back to what, like, the year 400 or something like that. I mean, he goes way back. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a mind bending book. I'm actually, I just finished it uh, a few weeks ago and I'm going to probably go back and reread it and take some more notes because it's just so mind bending. It's, it's something that I've I had actually in the back of my mind for probably 30 ish years or so. Cause I remember my dad mentioning something about, 
the, the cycles of democracy and something like we were, used to listen to Rush Limbaugh on the radio all the time in the car. So that's, I grew up with Rush Limbaugh in my ears and I guess maybe that's why I like podcasts and I like long form and, uh, but yeah, yeah. Midwest. Yeah. So, um, right. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's something that's been bouncing around in the back of my mind for quite some time. And yeah, definitely. Uh, it'll definitely at least open your eyes to some things and give you a, a little bit of a perspective. It's funny that you, you mentioned, um, I forget what it was now, but you mentioned something to the effect of like, being able to understand how it works puts you at ease and lets you lets you feel a little bit more calm about the situation and not so uh, over anxious about it. I feel the same way about certain things like thinking about death, right? You know, ideally you've got 40 or 50 years ahead of me, but um, putting it in the context of understanding like what death looks like, what, what, uh, you know, what the impacts are going to be of me dying and things like that. And not to go on like this weird kind of deep, dark tangent, but it's not really even about that. It's just about understanding and, and inviting it in as a conversation piece in your mind to be able to then put yourself at ease and, and reduce the anxiety about death, because the closer you get to it, the more anxious you're going to get about it, unless you truly understand it and you truly have processed it, like what exactly it is. Um, the same with the fourth turning, I think. So now that we've touched on books, uh, many books, actually, um, if you could pick one particular book um, that has greatly, greatly influenced your choices, I know Kiyosaki is in your bio, and it's it's a great book. And it's actually one of those books that majority of uh, real estate investors and people who deal with real estate investing um, point to as one of their, you know, one or two books that they've they've read. I, I don't think I've met any that haven't read that book. Uh, but if you could point to one specific book that has influenced your life more than any other books, and it would be a book that you would potentially give away as a gift to other people because you think it's so important, what, what would that book be? Hmm. Yeah. So I, I did give that book away for a little while and I, I think it is important, but I think it's important. I wouldn't say it's the most profound book in the world. I think it's a good book because it, gives it makes a somewhat boring subject easy to digest to get someone into understanding the topic um well i give away my book more than any other book but i think that's a cop-out answer and i'm not here to self-promote um i don't know that i've really given away copies of either of these books but uh, two books that I really like are Set for Life by Scott Trench, which is the CEO of Bigger Pockets, and it's just a basic finance slash real estate book. But he does a really good job of breaking the finance side down, um, in a in a different way. It's not basic, boring budgeting stuff. It's just a good way. It's a good basic like finance to real estate kind of walkthrough. That's not Dave Ramsey style but also not crazy high leverage it's like a good bridge the gap basic real estate finance book um but the one that i think i would say has influenced me a lot um and again not super pro i don't know that there's like a single book that has really made the most dramatic impact on my life um but i think the four hour work week 
was one that really shifted the way that I operate and has probably had a one of the more profound long-term effects on my life, maybe that or the miracle morning. So the idea of actually having a morning routine probably made a, the most effect on my life. But then the four hour work week, because, you know, in the military or in W2 jobs in general, there's no urgency. There's no like, there's no reward for getting your stuff done fast. So people, you know, how, well, what if I can get, I'll try to get this done in this amount of time. And if I get it done sooner, cool. But if not, yeah, just stay until it gets done or yeah, I'll just get the least amount of stuff done until 4.30 when I get to go home and the least amount I can get done without getting fired. But as an entrepreneur, you want to be successful you have to figure out how to do the absolute most amount of stuff in the least amount of time. And so you got to figure out how to be efficient, how to outsource, how to scale, how to batch, how to time block, how to, you know, whatever that is. And so that book was where I finally started to realize like, oh, I can hire a virtual assistant. I can automate this. I can systemize this. I can outsource this. I can, you know, so it was where I first began to learn how to crank things out at a much more efficient level than what I'd ever done before. Yeah. All great books. Actually, um, it's funny that you mentioned the, uh, the miracle morning. Uh, he just, he just, well, hopefully it's released. I don't know. It was in pre-release maybe about a month ago, but they just did a documentary. They spent six years, um, documenting his life. Um, Hal Elrod is the author, um, but they did a documentary. It's, it's either released now or it's soon to be released. Uh, so maybe I'm giving away the, <laughs> the Easter egg, but, uh, yeah, it's a great one hour, about an hour and some change documentary about Hal over the last six or seven years is what they spent putting the documentary together. Great. It's amazing. I can actually, I'll see if I can shoot you a link to it or something. Yeah, that'd be sweet. I'd definitely check it out. He's got a crazy story. Yeah. He's got a, <laughs> an intense story and uh, it'll definitely, it's one of those wake up kind of books. Um, cool. Four hour work week too. That's a great one. I love that book. I love everything. Tim Ferriss. He's my man crush. <laughs> Tim, Tim is. You're my man crush and not in a weird way. Just you're my man crush. <laughs> yeah. Tim's awesome. Um, if you could have the opportunity to invest and you probably have had the opportunity to invest at least a, uh, a sizable portion of this amount that I wrote down, but let's just say it's $10 million into something that you are deeply, deeply passionate about. And maybe something that people just don't know about you that you are passionate about it. It could be, you know, comic books or whatever, something, something strange that people just might not know about you um, or charity or anything like that. Like what, what would you invest that $10 million into? So we're, we're not talking about return on investment so much as just, just for for funsies yeah just for funsies cars cars and adrenaline that'd be car motorcycle um toys 100 percent. i mean i've been a and people probably there's probably people who know that but like for context when i you know i did all the typical military things right where i you know by the time i bought my first house i had a negative net worth because i had done the you know alcohol tattoos guns cars harley women whatever um and i had had like five cars and 
the Harley and whatever else by the time I was a sergeant. And then I had a, a 2001 Honda S2000 that I like completely built the end, like tore the engine apart, rebuilt everything. I did everything but uh, port and polish the head myself and the dyno because I didn't have my own dyno, obviously. Uh, everything else I did myself in the garage. Um, and that car was beautiful and it ran like a, I mean, it was, it was nuts. It had a two-step. I mean, it was, it was fun. I mean, I, it was, it was a, I have a, still have a picture of it floating around a couple pictures of it floating around on Facebook. I sold that car to buy a duplex and then I sold that duplex and I was about to buy another sports car and I bought a, use that money from that duplex to be a half the down payment on a hotel with some buddies. And then I keep convincing myself every time I'm about to buy the next sports car, I'm like, eh, we'll roll this into another property. And the itch is real. So one of these days it's going to happen, but I still haven't bought myself that car yet. So who knows? Do you know what exactly that car is? Like make model year? Is there a specific car you're looking at or you're just looking at something? There's a few. Uh, might be a, I mean, I do love the S2000, uh, but on the top of the list is, you know, there's a Ferrari, obviously. Uh, but on the top of the list is a Porsche 911 GT3 RS, uh, Ford GT40, and a right-hand drive R34 Skyline 1998 from Japan. Um, those are probably top three. The R34, not necessarily because it's like my favorite car, but more because it's just like a middle finger to any car person to show up in a right-hand drive car at a car meet and be like, oh yeah, it's street legal now because it's 25 years old. Thank you. But, uh, and you can get one of those imported for like 80 to a hundred grand, but you got to pay cash because good luck financing something like that from an auctioneer in Japan. So it's not a, I was talking to a guy just the other day, you can get a GTT, which is kind of like the R34, but it's, you know, not twin turbo and not all wheel drive, still right-hand drive, but not the same. If you're gonna if you're gonna do it, you gotta go all the way. So gotta get the RB twenty six. Yeah, the the price has gone up significantly, and ju not just those, but like all cars is insane. Uh, for especially for some of these used cars, like it's nuts. Uh, but yeah, that that would definitely be a a nice car to have. I mean, my sister is a car nut too, and she like me, and she's always wanted to get a uh, an R thirty four GTR. So. And you're right. If you get the GTST or the GTT or like, it's just not the same exact thing. No, nope. And there's, and there's nothing like showing up in a right hand drive at a meet. Yeah. Yeah. They, they catch my eye every time I see them. So. <laughs> I've been wanting one for many, many years, but I don't know if it's really on my, my bucket list thing of things to do. I've had a lot of cars and driven a lot of cars. So yeah. I love cars. When you're home. Oh, but the amount of real estate that could buy me. Yeah. So actually, um, and yeah, we have a little bit of time. So I just want to dig into some of these other questions specifically about real estate since that's what you do. It's your, your specialty and um, why not? Um, when you got started in real estate investing, you said you bought a, uh, what was it? A duplex, a multifamily unit in Missouri, I believe was the first one, right? Um, what did that deal look like? How was it structured? And, and did you just jump into it or did you have to sit on it for a couple of months and think about it? Or Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a duplex. Um, 
I jumped in pretty quick, probably like three months, maybe four between first book and closing. Uh, I, I was, I had wanted to buy a house when I first got on recruiting, but I didn't know enough about it. And the recruiters weren't, you know, that you talk about people who don't really know what they're doing. None of them owned a house and they all talked me out of buying, uh, because, you know, why would I listen to somebody who doesn't own a house about buying real estate? That of course makes sense. Um, And uh, so when I finally read the book and was like, wow, this makes sense, I'd already wanted to. And then I was kind of on a time crunch because I was going to be leaving uh, recruiting duty in six months to a year. I didn't have orders yet, which so I wasn't for sure, for sure. And I might have stayed out as a career recruiter. Um, But if I waited until I had orders, then I wouldn't be able to use a primary residence mortgage. So I had to move quick and my lease was coming due on my apartment. So it was like I either renew my lease or I make this happen. And so I was paying five fifty a month for this two, one apartment. And, uh, I found this, I was looking at a bunch of different places, but I found this duplex. I think it was like 79,000. And the way it worked out after all was said and done, my payment was like six seventy five or something for everything. And the other tenant was paying four twenty five or something like that. Four fifty. I don't remember. Um, so, you know, I was paying 125 a month out of pocket, 150 a month out of pocket plus, you know, utilities. So let's call it 300 a month now to live in a two one that was a little bit bigger, but I owned it as opposed to 550 plus utilities. So 600, 650 to rent a two one. Um, and then when I moved out it, you know, it, it actually was making a little bit of money and I, that was kind of my proof of concept. And, uh, I used an FHA loan, so three and a half percent down. It was like four grand out of pocket, which, I only had because my Harley got totaled. And so, you know, I used the money from insurance and, uh, and I only use the FHA loan because the VA lender told me you can only use the VA loan once. So I shouldn't waste it on that property. And that's wrong. You can use the VA loan quite a few times. And it's part of why I'm so passionate about the VA loan because nobody knows how to use it. And, uh, yeah, so that was the first deal. Yeah. That's, uh, that was kind of my experience as well with the VA loan, but that, that sounds like a very serendipitous kind of thing where the Harley crashed and you were looking either way and, and then kind of you found the right property and fell into it. And, and then you realized after you bought it, uh, after it started making money, that it was actually something that made sense. So um, the VA loan, the VA loan. Yeah. So, so let's actually dig into the VA loan real quick. Um, that's a great, great segue. Um, for me personally, I had to deal with um, purchasing this property right here. The one that I'm in is actually on the market right now. If anybody's looking for a decent place in Augusta, Georgia, that they could potentially turn into an Airbnb and make a ton of money. Um, I just don't have a property manager worth a damn that I can find to, to manage it. Otherwise, I would keep it. Um, but yeah, the VA loan process... Uh, at least from my perspective in Georgia, so, so let me just be selfish for a minute and give my my side of the coin. Um, I went back and forth with the VA for a couple months about this particular property because of the fact that it's on a commercial, um, what's it called? The commercial uh, zoning, right? 
technically commercial zoning. It's like a C2 zoning. Anyways, come to find out after I did my due diligence and my research and everything else, I basically had to find out all the information for the VA folks that they could have easily looked up because it's all online. Um, and went back to them with like this portfolio and this like slideshow of everything that I've researched and figured out and told them like, look, legally I can buy this house with, with the VA loan money. Uh, even though it's a commercial zone property, commercial zone doesn't mean anything in Georgia, apparently, especially in a residential neighborhood. So yeah, we went back and forth and back and forth. And at the end of the day, I ended up doing all the legwork to give them the information that they should have gave me to tell me that I was going to be eligible for the loan. So um, give me your, give me your two or three minute, uh, speech about VA loans and what you think and, and what you think people need to know about them. Well, uh, I'll start with this. I'm a licensed agent <clears throat> and a licensed lender, and I've never transacted either actively. I just do referrals. So I, I was making introductions to people I thought were great agents and lenders, uh, within the community, just because people would ask me and I was like, Oh, this guy's awesome in your market. And then, uh, eventually somebody was like, Hey dude. Um, if you got your license, I could give you legally, I could pay you 25% of my commission for the introduction. And I'd really like to give you that check, but because you're not licensed, I can't do it. So you should get licensed so I can pay you to say thank you because this is the third person this year that has bought a house from me that you've introduced me to. So please go get your stupid license. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And I didn't do it. And then after a few months, I was like, there was like two or three other people were basically telling me like, hey, idiot, uh, we want to give you a piece of our commission to say thank you, and we can't, so go get your license. And so I did. Um, and so I, I say that not to, because it wasn't some like crazy business that I was like, oh, I can make money off people, but it, I was already doing it. Um, and I say that just because when I say the next piece, uh, people often are like, wow, Dave's this, you know, I don't know, people seem to think whenever people make money that it's greedy. Um, over the last two years, that referral business has been anywhere from 95 to 120,000 in commissions received. And uh, we've helped people buy right at around 50 to $60 million worth of houses throughout the community. And so I've gotten to see good, bad, and ugly. And, and the reason I bring up me being licensed is that having gone through both courses, I can tell you firsthand, that you learn nothing about the VA loan. They're like, hey, it's it's zero down, the VA backs it, and now we're gonna talk about the FHA loan. And you're like, that's it? That's all you teach these people? And what happens is, for some reason, people are like, oh, this guy's a real estate agent. He said he knows about the VA loan. Great, he's a military veteran. Or, oh, this guy's a, a lender. He said he knows about the VA loan, and he's a veteran. Or they like go to a big bank and they're like, it's a lender. They've got to know about the VA loan. No, absolutely not. You need a lender who is passionate enough to have read the VA guideline on their own and said, hey, I'm going to read through this crap. Like you, you want a lender who's willing to go and call the underwriter and say, hey, on this line of the guidelines, here's a screenshot in this email I'm sending you. It says these words, and that means you're wrong. So here's the guideline. Slide it across. There's no you know, overlay from the bank. We can do this. Um, so I say all that just to say 
the VA loan gets a bad rep because people are like, you can't do this. And the reality is the VA loan is the single best primary residence mortgage in existence in the US. The problem is banks place their own overlays on it because they have their own, you know, oh, well, the VA doesn't have a minimum credit score, but we don't want to lend on anyone who doesn't have a 620. But the lender wants your business. So if you have a 615 credit score, the lender isn't going to say, hey, we only take a 620. This bank will do 600. Go talk to them. The lender is going to say, the VA loan only does 620. You should use this other product. Or the VA loan only does 620. Here's how you can improve your score. And so people are like, oh, the VA loan sucks. No, 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 no. 95% of the time someone tells you no, if you just ask, can you show me where it says that in the guideline? You'll find out real quickly that it's the bank telling you no, not the VA. And then you can either go to someone else or tell the bank, like the bank will, will flex on you. Um, and so like even in San Diego's market and Ventura County and some of these like super expensive places, like during mid pandemic, like the hottest market we've seen in the last 20 years, decade, whatever, we were, I, my roommate was a VA lender and he, he was doing 17, I saw once was a 14, but, but 17 day closes with million dollar zero down VA loans in San Diego County, Orange County, California, left and right, no issues, never had an issue with closing. And he was confident enough about it that when an offer was sent out, he would call the listing agent and say, Hey, I know the VA loan sometimes gets a bad rap. I'm going to close this in 17 days. And if for any reason we don't close on day 17 and it's my fault, it's the lender's fault. I will pay $240 a day in per diem for every day we're over to your buyer or to your, to your seller. So, and to my knowledge, you never paid the per diem once. Um, so I say all that just to say the VA loan itself is phenomenal. The way it's built has no credit requirements, no debt to income requirements. Uh, the way the uh, credit score works, the interest rates will be better for anybody who's under a 780 score than any other loan product out there. Um, it's, you know, the PMI and MIP and all these, I mean, there's so many different ways to slice it. The only complaint people have is the funding fee, but if you, I have an article on my website that really breaks this down, but if you, if you do the math, that's nothing compared to the MIP and PMI of FHA or conventional. And I would never argue that putting 20% down to avoid the funding fee is actually worth it because you could put zero down and then invest that 20% anywhere else and earn a better return. Um, even if you invested that 20% in like bonds, you would outpace it. And so, you know, or just kept the 20% in your bank account in case something goes wrong. And then you can actually make your payments with that 20% instead of it just being tied up in equity and you're broke. So, you know, there's just, I could go on forever, but it is, I don't know. It's, it's amazing. You can't beat it. I mean, it's, it's just the best product out there. Uh, and, and people sometimes say the inspection process with the VA, but the FHA inspection is worse. And I'll tell you the reason I brought up how much volume that we've closed over the last two years with, with referrals is because I've not had a single property go under contract that fell out of contract because of the inspection with the VA loan. Not once. $50 million, $60 million in closings, $200,000 in commissions paid out. That's 25% of the commission. So agents have made 
don't know, what, $400,000, $500,000 off introductions through my, through my network. Well, that's just on the one side. So almost a million dollars in commission, like pretty, pretty decent volume of, of deals closing. It's averaged two to three, uh, two to two to four a month over the last two years. Not one has fallen out for an inspection, knock on wood. So the rumors are just that it's just, it's, it, if an agent or a lender tells you the VA loan isn't competitive, it's because they don't understand it. Find another agent or lender happy to make an intro. Obviously, you know that that means I will get a commission. So, you know, happy to also let somebody else make that intro if you want. I, I don't care about the money. Um, also, you don't, the way that whole thing works is like, the reason I love that business model is if I make that introduction, like if I introduce you to somebody and you buy a house, you don't pay me. And that agent actually doesn't pay me. The listing agent who sold the house pays me. And only if you actually buy a house. So it's like, Win, 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 and only if everybody's happy. No, no, no. That's 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 the way I like my answers long-winded, and I like to go into the details. So thank you for that. Um, let's, for selfish reasons, uh, we got a few more minutes. I hope I don't want to. I want to be very respectful of the time. <clears throat> um, let's talk about long-distance real estate investing and. Let me just give you a kind of pseudo scenario. So say someone owns a house, they've owned it for say five or six years. Um, they got a little bit of equity in it and they are having issues trying to find a property manager so that they can then use it as a rental property or something like that as they decide to move to another state or another country. Um, how would you approach that and what kind of resources are out there for, for someone looking to do something like that? Hmm. The first thing I would ask is in this hypothetical scenario uh, where the person mentioned that it might make a good short-term rental previously, is that person interested in trying to make it a short-term rental themselves? And I preface that with short-term rentals are much more work. They can be much more lucrative, but you can actually automate quite a bit of the process out as a short-term rental. Yeah, so I guess let me let me just put it out on the table since we're we're doing that. Uh, it's a thing. Um, I bought the house originally in 2017, and I bought it for two reasons. I needed a place to stay. And I was PCSing here to Fort Gordon to go to a school that was six months, and I also decided to go on Facebook to my network of other warrant officers that potentially also coming here for school. And not just that, but all the other warrant officers. And I asked them, like, if you've ever been to Fort Gordon, if you had to PCS there as a reservist or as an active duty person, because it's kind of one and the same, it's a little bit more difficult as a reservist. Um, because you literally have to, like, PCS by yourself or you bring your family down and have to do all this crazy crap that you're not used to. Uh, and then you end up with, you know, a U-Haul full of crap that you want that you're going to take home because you had to buy all this crap to live here for six months and you know your wife's going to just throw it out as soon as you get to the door when you get back home. So um, I just asked. I put out a survey. I was like, hey, what are some of the biggest hurdles you have to deal with when PCSing as a reservist or maybe not a, a normal Title Ten person? And so the responses I got back were like transportation, the, the distance to the base, hooking up all the utilities and turning them back off before you leave. Uh, finding the rental contract, getting all that stuff put in place, and the fact that you only have one day of travel to get here, right? So you have to kind of do that stuff pre 
and then hit the ground running and start school and take care of that stuff in the meantime in between, right? <clears throat> so the secondary nature of the house was, hey, it's got like four bedrooms and I'm only one person. So what if I just rented out the rooms at a very reasonable rate, way below what it would cost to rent an apartment, a one bedroom apartment? Um, the common area is there. I renovated the kitchen as much as I could for three weeks when I moved in um, just to make it livable, painted a bunch of stuff, set everything up, got some furniture in here. And uh, yeah, I had two people staying with me for that first six months while I was here. Um, and then I PCS to Atlanta, which is only two hours away. Um, and I, in, in between, I had those people give referrals to other people. So I had, you know, people here at four months, six months at a time throughout the couple of years and then COVID hit. Um, and then it kind of just went to nothing. And I think they changed the rules with the, with the PCS moves to go to school, or maybe they changed it into a TDY move. I don't know how they did it, but <clears throat> literally the issue is I'm physically not going to be here at all to take care of the property. And the way the property is cut, it's cut in, in the manner of making it a, either a really nice Airbnb or even a decent two or three person kind of living, kind of co-living space. And it's located close enough to the base where it's literally like five minutes from here to the middle of base, maybe 10, give or take. But it's on the, the one side of the base where there's no traffic yet because they're just now starting to build out this side of town. Everything else is saturated. So it takes an hour to get in the other gate. It takes five minutes to get in this gate. Um, so that's the situation. and. Uh, what I really like to do is just get out from underneath it. And that's what I want to do. Um, I think I could do it and manage it, but I just don't have the time and, and willpower to do that, especially from thousands of miles away. Yeah. Well, I'd like to introduce you to my buddy, Rio, um, just to see if that might help. Rio is a, he might've gotten promoted a major. If not, he's a captain in the Marine Corps. He is, uh, he lived next to me in Oceanside and he has a, I think it's a five bed, four bath that, uh, we used to go over and like watch the Super Bowl out because it's this badass house with like pool table room with a bar and bad, you know, cool gym and it was all pimped out. And he had, at the time, he got married, but at the time it was him as a single captain with four single lieutenants all room in and it was like the party place everybody would go over there friday saturday sunday and like me and my roommate whenever we went over there it was like we had to set rules like no matter what we will leave at 10 30 because otherwise god knows what's going to happen at two in the morning at rio's house with all these lieutenants um but rio got stationed in okinawa japan right after he got married and he is managing all five bedrooms with five different single officers from japan and has been for the last year and a half and cash flows like two or three thousand dollars a month um and to my knowledge doesn't have hasn't had any issues and hasn't really had to do much from a management standpoint and i have no idea how he's doing it because i would never even think about trying to take that on because i can't deal with details or management but uh he he would probably be somebody worth talking to just because he's doing that with a property that sounds somewhat similar and it's a high end kind of sounds similar layout. So, and he's really cool dude. So he'd, he'd be willing to at least talk to you and see if, see if maybe there's a way that it wouldn't stress you out to do it. Um, 
outside of that, as far as finding a property manager, are there, what I would probably do is I would, I would hunt for local real estate investor groups, either on Facebook or like a local RIA, like a real estate investor association. And I would try to like hunt down some local real estate investors. And I'm trying to think, uh, you'll have to shoot me an email or, or a text or something when we're done. Um, I, I can't remember for sure if it's Atlanta or Augusta. And I want to say Augusta is where my friends Soli and Philip or Phil uh, both invest. And if so, then I'm sure they have a property manager and they would be able to make introductions. Um, and that would that would be easy. So I th- I think it's Augusta, but I can't remember for sure. So I'll I'll double check that. You'll just have to remind me because I'm scatterbrained, and as soon as we're done, I'm going to be out the door. So I won't think about it till tomorrow. But yeah, well, technically, I have it um, already with my really good longtime friend. I actually actually bought the property through her, and we've remained friends and and uh, over the years. So she's, she's going to be the listing agent for it. So it should go live like January 3rd or something like that. And the market's not bad. I think it can get a decent price, pay it off and then walk away with some cash. So it's not a, it's not a total loss in either way. Uh, just the thought of having to do anything managerial with it from thousands of miles away in a different time zone. That's not, not really what I want to do. And it doesn't, it doesn't fulfill me like we like we talked about at the beginning. It's not fulfilling for me. I if I didn't that's the funny thing is I didn't do that here. I did that when I was in New England. I networked with all the real estate REI groups and all the real estate people and there's a ton of people up there that are actually on bigger podcasts podcasts and um bigger pockets podcasts and and written some books and done some big things. So some big real estate investors up in the northeast. Um, but here I didn't do that here in Augusta. I just didn't follow through with it and didn't continue to do it. So yeah, kind of let it fall away to the wayside (laughs) focused on other things. So, um, okay. So we're really, really close on time. I know we're like probably pushing the, pushing the boundaries (laughs) of comfort. Um, but if there's anything else that we haven't discussed or haven't covered yet any of the questions that i haven't covered out of the list that i got from from your uh data that you would want to talk about or mention we can discuss and continue and again as long as you want to go i'm i'm game you can go for as long as you want normally i would this is where i would insert my comment about advice but you know we we've already kind of touched on that and we've we've already touched on uh VA loans and I mean I don't and content network I don't know if there's much we haven't cut I mean honestly I'm gonna have to introduce you to the co-host of my show he would love this especially because you've read all of Nassim's books he'll be he'll be you know man crushing it up <clears throat> well how about this let me ask the elephant in the room question since it seems to be the one that's that sticks out the most whenever I read through the questions and read through your bio um, your income isn't the problem. What does that actually mean? Oh, yeah, that's actually a good one. Uh, it's a service member thing, right? I mean, you've been around the military long enough. Everybody's always griping about how little money they get paid. Um, 
and it's like, oh, we don't get paid enough. The military doesn't get paid enough. The president didn't give us a big enough raise. We don't get paid enough. The BAH isn't enough. They don't understand how BAH works, and so you've got a E3 trying to live in a five-bedroom house that's meant for a colonel of 40 years, and like, BAH isn't enough to cover my house. No no joke, really. I wonder why. Um, you know, it's it's silly. And so I say that because in every situation when you dig into it, the income isn't really the issue. It's how much money you're you're spending, right? Um, and that's not a dig at the service member's income. That's to extrapolate that if you don't figure out how to manage your expenses, it's not going to matter how much money you make. Um, I mean, it, not to brag, I, I showed my my podcast co-host this yesterday because he was saying something. I, I told him I bought into a new marketing system called Go High Level, and it's like four ninety seven a month. And I was trying really hard to get all my ClickFunnels funnels moved over to it because I realized that ClickFunnels was going to bill me for the next month today. And, uh, and I was like, you know, it makes no sense to not get them moved over because that's $97. And if I just get them moved over tonight, then I don't have to worry about getting billed tomorrow when I already have the new system. I should just get it moved over and save the hundred dollars. Um, you know, it's part of why like the system does everything. And uh, he's like, wow, you can spend $500 a month on this new system. Like, you must be making a lot more money than I thought. I'm like, well, like, so I showed him, you know, and I pulled up my net worth tracker and like my income, my gross for through like everything that I am doing, not including my disability and not including disability. And I'm sure I probably missed something. Um, and I didn't build this part of the tracker until February, but from February until December. So really just February through November, I guess. Um, $313,000 this year gross. So like average, probably 30,000 a month. I haven't taken a single dollar ever to my knowledge as a paycheck out of the business. I don't have massive amounts in savings or checking because the expenses in the business have every time I make enough money in the business to justify the next level of hire or the next level of, you know, product or the next level of service or the next, uh, what, you know, investment or, or whatever, uh, it goes right there. And so that's not necessarily bad expenses, but it's just to, to say that, you know, average $30,000 a month and I'm not getting a single penny of it. My accountant actually was yelling at me, not yelling, but you know, she was basically like last month. She's like, if you don't cut yourself a paycheck in December, your S corp, the IRS is going to change it back to an LLC and you are going to lose your tax protection for not paying yourself. And I'm like, I'm probably gonna have to stroke myself a check this month. And then next month contribute it back as capital contributions and figure that piece out next year and hopefully make enough, actually keep enough to pay myself. Um, cause I'm basically just live on my disability pay and everything else is just the business. So anyway, all that being said, the, the whole concept is like, that's at scale. Like here's this thing that's making 20, $30,000 a month that I'm not keeping because of the expenses. And so 
the PFC who's making $2,000 a month and saying, I don't make enough money. Well, if you're spending all $2,000 a month, then when you get bumped to $2,200 a month, you immediately go to spending $2,200 a month. You're never going to get out of that hole. So if you start the process that way, like you're screwed. Now of that 30, right? A decent chunk of that, not all of it, obviously, but like that's not $30,000 that I'm spending on food, alcohol, employees, whatever like that. A decent chunk of that is going to actual investments or a flip that needs renovations or paying contractors or, or whatever. So it's, it's a different kind of expense now where it's actually going to come back into the business eventually or down the road or as equity or, or whatever. Um, but the, the whole point there is just to showcase like a doctor who makes $300,000 a year can be broke. I know that I know them. I've seen them. I've talked to them. I've coached them through it. Like, why do I have, I make $300,000 a year. Why do I not have enough money to, you know, pay for dinner? I don't know, dude. What are you blowing your money on? Let's look at it. $200,000 car, $800,000 house. It goes quick. And so the PFC who lives in the barracks, eats in the chow hall, doesn't buy a car because he can walk to work and bum rides from his friends and puts 50% of his paycheck in the TSP when he's 18 years old has probably got the most potential to start building wealth out of anybody. <laughs> if he just plays his cards right. But, so anyway, that's a really weird way to answer that question. But well, I mean, if, if anybody, and I'll, I'll actually link a couple of them in the show notes as well, but like I watched the, the TSP saving video as well today and a couple other videos over the course of the last week, just doing some homework and doing some research. And yeah, you, you, you break it down in there and very, very simple, easy to understand terms like if you do this starting at this date and then you even go further to say like even if you didn't do this for 20 years like here's where you can start now and i guess that's really the the premise of the whole thing is start where you're at and then go from there instead of complaining about it or bitching and moaning about it or blaming everybody else for for your shortcomings like take ownership take responsibility and start where where you're at (laughs) And you'll at least do something and not be sitting there uh, bemoaning the, the rest of the world for, for why you don't have what you want. Cool. Yeah, I think that's it. I think we, we covered a lot of topics. It's awesome. It's a really good, um, a really good talk, a really good way to get to know you as well. Um, I, I have this funny, like, feeling in the back of my mind that we've maybe exchanged information somewhere on bigger pockets somehow but i'll have to dig into the, the comments yeah i haven't been on in, in years but i know when i was on there i was on there all the time and i was always talking about this kind of military like lending and stuff like that so i'll have to dig into it and see if i find any messages in there when i was active duty and I realized that the active duty computers didn't block me from bigger pockets. I was in there every day. And then when I got out of the military, I was like, oh my God, I'm so busy. I don't have time for bigger pockets forum. And so I go in there like maybe once a week. Um, I need to get back in there. Yeah. So beyond all that, are there any 
parting words of wisdom beyond any of that stuff that you that you feel like you need to get out there or you think we got it all covered i think if i mean i think the the parting word of wisdom would just be set your financial foundation up right and then don't be afraid to take risks if you're young if you have a decent foundation you know you invest in the tsp so your retirement's covered and you got some savings while you're in and you've got a roof over your head in the barracks and chow hall to cover your food. So you know that you can blow your entire paycheck and you're still going to eat and have a place to stay. Take some risks while you can afford to do it. You know, if you fail at 22 years old and you end up like throwing it all away and everything goes super, super South reenlist problem solved. Ta-da! Like take some big, I mean, calculated, don't just go all in on stupid stuff, but take some big risks if they pan out while you've got that cushion, you'll be fine. But don't 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 wait till you it's too late and start taking big risks as a gamble. Take them when you're young, and then you know don't be afraid to go all in. Take some action, have some fun, and 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 don't forget to live life along the journey. That's an excellent excellent way to close it out. I appreciate you taking the time and spending all this time with me. I know it's a, it's definitely a, a challenge. Sometimes it's, it seems like a very long time, but I try to make it interesting enough. And I hope that uh, provide value to not only the the listeners out there, all 57 of them, but um, also to between the two of us as well. Um, where would you point people who want to come find you or come contact you or get in touch with you? What are, what are the best resources out there where they can find you? Yeah. If you, if you want to reach out to me directly, uh, Instagram at for military millionaires, probably the best way. Uh, I actually respond to all those direct messages myself. If you want to get plugged into the community, Facebook, the military millionaire, Facebook group is got 50 something thousand people in it and is probably the best hub to kind of touch base with everything. We've got blog, YouTube, podcasts, TikTok. Instagram, whatever, you name it, we're here. The biggest military real estate investing community in the world. That's right. Actually, let me let me ask you one real other quick thing and kind of like a, a shameless plug. Um, can you give me like the, the two-minute breakdown for your mastermind and why it's important for people who are interested in getting into real estate or investing either one? Because I'm sure it's not just all real estate. No, it, it was actually not even started as a real estate mastermind. It was just started as like a the idea of like a mastermind in general for service members and vets who were serious about growth, financial or otherwise. Uh, it just so happens that my entire network is pretty much all real estate guys. So it became that. Uh, I mean, I'm actually trying to bring it into like more whole marine concepts. So like my speaker last week was a fitness and nutrition guy and I'm bringing in a personal finance guy and then I'm bringing in a book publishing coach and I'm trying to make it more holistic, but it definitely still skews real estate. So the war room mastermind group is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the catchy mission statement and I've basically come up with the premier mastermind community for service members and vets who are serious about achieving financial freedom and their goals. Um, and, and basically it's just, we got like 160, 165 members and growing, and it's a place for service members and vets to come together and get serious about accountability, 
guest speaker. Like we, we bring in guest speakers. We do office hours. In fact, in uh, hour and a half, my uh, weekly office hours would start, which is basically like a one hour zoom call where I hang out on zoom and say for an hour, you can talk to me about anything. doesn't matter what personal real estate, whatever. Like it's the one spot that people will get weekly access to me for anything. Uh, Saturdays we bring in guest speakers or do breakout sessions or, um, and we got like Brandon Turner's coming to speak to the group on the 10th. And, um, so some big speakers, David Osborne spoken to the group, Matt Faircloth, Jay Scott, uh, there's been some good speakers for sure. Some big ones coming too. Um, and then, uh, trying to think of what else we do, small groups for accountability. Um, and a lot of people do deals, end up doing deals together and networking and, we got people in that group who run there's a guy in the group who's got a piece of a $10 million business that he's the CEO of. We've got a pe- people in the group who run million dollar businesses, guys doing two, $300,000 a month wholesaling. I mean, all, all walks of life, people who doing their first deal, um, you know, and, and there's a, there's a monthly fee. Uh, it's not huge. In fact, every mentor I've had or, or person who has looked at it has told me I need to like triple it. And I, just laugh and I'm like, eh, I don't want to charge service members that much, but, uh, but I, I think it's necessary to charge something because without skin in the game, then we wouldn't have real like serious people in the group. So, you know, and it forces the people who, when they realize that they need a break from real estate or they're not contributing to the group, they cancel their membership. And then now I know that we only have active members. So it's, it's good. It's been pretty cool to see what's happened with that group over the years. Yeah, I started looking into it and it sounds really interesting. And it's I would recommend it a lot of folks out there who are getting into the retirement phase of their life, especially, um, or even just transitioning members. It's a good way to get your feet on the ground to the next chapter of your your career, your life, uh, definitely. And for the price, it's it's incredible. We'll link that down in the show notes as well. I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned it because I know it's a it's a really big thing that you're getting put together and you've, you've got a bunch of really good people in there and it's uh, incredible value for, for the cost, uh, cost to benefit ratio is very, very high or very, very high, high value, low, low cost. So cool. Well, David, thank you very much for taking the time with me. Um, I really, truly appreciate you. I, I, went out on a limb and reached out to you on Instagram. So that's how I know you're, you definitely answer your Instagram. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time with me and spending this time today and going through all these topics and hopefully maybe in the future we can sit down and do it again. Um, for everybody else out there, like I said, everything will be down in the show notes and until next time, have a blessed one, have a happy holiday and safe holiday and into the new years. And we'll see you later.